Volcanoes, multiverses, marionettes. Those were a few of our favorite things at the movies in 2022, which we're celebrating on this best of episode of the Think Christian podcast. Welcome back to our third and final episode in this series, looking back at the year that was. I'm Josh Larson, your host and editor over at thinkchristian.net, where we believe there's no such thing as secular. Our previous episodes tackled TV and music, and you can find those in the Think Christian podcast feed. But it's the big screen we're focusing on today with the help of Abby Olchesi, J.R. Foresteros, and Listeners who chimed in on social media, you can always find us at Think Christian or sent us their picks via email, tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. Let's start with a note from Jonathan Kana, whose favorite film of last year was After Yang, writer-director Koganata's future-set family drama about an AI robot who malfunctions. Here's Jonathan. I can't think of any film in recent memory, perhaps Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life or Alex Garland's Annihilation Come Close, where the combination of story, characterization, cinematography, and production design combined to create such a sensual feast for the imagination. Not to mention a poignant exposition of an ephemeral idea like memory. In its own very quiet, very meditative way, after Yang explores just what role memory plays in the establishment and evolution of human identity. And its breathtaking final act offers a glimpse at what it might mean for the very essence of a person to live on in the lives and memories of others, even as the body begins to decay. Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan used to write for us before life got too busy, but he always takes time to share his year-end reflections on the movies, and I'm grateful for that. Many more movie thoughts are ahead, but a quick note first, we have been asking you on these recent shows to go ahead and review us and rate us over on Spotify. So please do that if you have a chance. It just takes a second or two. It is something you can only do if you're listening on the mobile app. So keep that in mind. Okay. In another life, Somewhere out there in the multiverse, I got to talk to Abiel Chessy and J.R. Foresteros about our favorite movies of 2022. And we recorded it, luckily for you. Here we are with J.R. Foresteros and Abiel Chessy, ready to discuss the best films of last year. Now, cinema has moved on. I think Sundance 2023 is probably going to be underway by the time this episode is out. But we're going to spend some more time on highlights from last year. Before we do get to some specific titles, I am curious to hear from both of you. Maybe we'll start with you, Abby. What sort of movie year was it for you? Were there any themes, any trends, anything that stood out or seemed to define the previous 12 months at the movies? Yeah, I was actually really pleasantly surprised with the uh, the caliber of movies that came out this year, particularly with regard to movies that I think hold up to multiple viewings. I can think of three within my top 10 at least that I think really merit multiple views and reveal new exciting things each time. So like we're going to talk about everything everywhere all at once. That's one of them. Jordan Peele's Nope is another one. I've had the the great pleasure of sharing that with my parents and having them want to share that with everybody they know. So um, nice. it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and I'm trying to think if there were others. Oh, White Noise is another one that I think merits multiple yeah. views as well, because there are so many details in all of those movies and so many sub themes that like you can just keep coming to again and again and again, and you'll find something new every time. 
That rings true to me. I'm thinking about my own top 10 and at the top after Sun and after Yang were both movies I rewatched to just fully immerse myself in and know how much I love them. I knew I loved them right from the start, but yeah, everything, everywhere, all at once. Nope. I didn't get to a second time, really wanted to, might've bumped it even higher on my list if I had, but yeah, dense rewatchable titles does to seem, does seem to be a hallmark from last year. Does that ring true for you as well, JR? Absolutely. And, you know, for me, it, you know, being a horror buff, it was an, a really, really strong year for horror, both indie and studio horror. And I would say similarly to what Abby said, even a lot of those horror films, which often I think it's easy for a horror film to be a, a one watch, you know, kind of one and done. And then the only reason you revisit it is for nostalgia or, or, or something. But a lot of the films that came out this year from Barbarian to Nope to X and Pearl from Ty West, the kind of like twin surprise there. Watching each of those movies made me want to go back and watch the other one again to see more of how they're connected, you know. So, yeah, I thought I think a lot of that rewatchability that seemed like there was also a lot of dealing with, I think, how fraught and fractured relationships have gotten. Of course, everything, everything, where all at once is that also Banshees of an Asherin. Uh, felt that way very much. You know, even a lot of the rom-coms that came out, I think were more tense in dealing with that kind of a thing. I don't know if either of you caught Seven Days. It's a rom-com about two Indian uh, oh. kids that are thrust together into a... They're, they're set to go on a date for an arranged marriage by their parents, and then the COVID lockdown hits, and they're trapped inside together. <laughs> and so, like, a kind of a creative way to get there. But, uh, yeah, another really yeah. just interesting... And then another interesting film about cultures colliding and expectations and all that kind of stuff, which just seems more and more and more interesting, you know, as as we progress through the kind of culture that we're in right now. And that was and seven days, you said? Seven days. Yeah, it was on Hulu is where I caught it. So didn't get a lot of buzz. But when I posted about it, several people also were like, oh, yeah, I saw that randomly also. And it was great. So interesting. And I wanted to just add on to uh, JR's observation about uh, indie horror. It was a really great year for horror, both large scale and independent. And uh, another movie that I think is a, a really dense and symbolically interesting film that I think rewards multiple watchings is uh, A Wounded Fawn, which is available on Shudder and kind of gets into maybe another sub theme of, of uh, 2022, which is endurance performances. <laughs> um, I feel mm. like both that and Pearl have two really incredible, specifically end credits performances from the leads that you really cannot uh. believe that they are still doing for as long as they go on. And it's really impressive to watch, like not in a, not in a self-parodic way, not in like a obnoxious way, but just like a really impressive way that I think is, is worth paying attention to. Okay, so a couple titles there that slipped by me, and I'm that's the stage I'm at actually. We're recording this, you know, about mid January, and it's the stage of how did I not see that? You mentioned White Noise, it was one I just watched a couple days ago, and Pearl is on my agenda for tomorrow. It's, you know, having seen X, I knew I had to get to it at some point as it being this, this prequel of sorts, but just didn't before the end of the year, and uh, I'm going to rectify that shortly. So we've already touched on a number of good titles. Go ahead, JR. You want to jump oh, in yeah. on that? Well, I don't know that this is a this isn't a new theme, but it's still dealing with a lot of like class warfare. Even I mean, I'm thinking back to the Batman, which you know, we got a reboot of a major superhero franchise and that really honed in with the Riddler being an incel and and you know, playing on a lot of that. Also, of course, the the two movies that came out 
almost right next to each other, Triangle of Sadness and the menu, which like really went all in on that sort of thing. Glass Onion also had a lot of that kind of critique going oh, yeah. on, which again, Knives Out did as well. So that's not terribly surprising, but it, it just, it, it again, seems that we're still culturally trying to grapple with these like massive inequalities that we see all around us and wondering, you know, what does justice look like uh, in any kind of meaningful sense? And, and is there any hope or do we just burn it all down and start over? Definitely the eat the rich subgenre was strong last year for <laughs> sure. So we've touched on a number of titles already. Let's dig into a handful a bit more deeply. And I want to start with Abby's Pick, which happened to be my favorite documentary from last year. It very nearly cracked my own top 10. Abby, tell us uh, what film this is and tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So uh, the movie that we're discussing at this point is Fire of Love, which is a documentary by Sarah Dosa. It was, I guess, released by National Geographic, and you can find it on Disney Plus to stream. But it's the story of uh, Maurice and Katya Kraft, who were a married couple who were also volcanologists and uh, kind of pioneering in in the field, uh, were part of it just as it started to kind of get its legs and were kind of singularly dedicated their entire lives to the study of volcanoes and eventually ways to keep volcanoes basically from killing large amounts of people by informing them about the importance of recognizing warning signs from volcano, like coming volcanic eruptions, basically, and encouraging them to evacuate. The The crafts died in, I think, 1991 as they were looking at a uh, a volcano. So that's that's kind of the the framework of the story is that it starts on their very last day, then kind of flashes back to the, the process, the story of their career, and then comes back around to this kind of really sweet and dramatic conclusion. It's, I think, as much a, a love story as it is a really interesting uh, look at the science of volcanoes. A set of forces collide inside the planet throughout the enormity of geologic time to trigger one instant an eruption that forever reshapes the Earth. And across humanity's two million years, two tiny humans are born in the same place, at the same time, and they love the same thing. And that love moved us closer to the Earth. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it, and it's right there in the title, right? Fire of Love. Mm -hmm. Did you go for this one too, JR? I did. I saw a trailer for it before some, you know, something we saw this year. And it was one of those that I, I knew if it was possible, I needed to see it on the big screen because most of the footage, I don't know if either of you knows the percentage, but most of the footage was actually the craft's own footage that they had shot, you know, while they were studying. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. it's got to be like 90% because there's maybe some like, stock footage or things that that uh, Sarah Dosa adds in as kind of illustration, but the vast majority of it is stuff they shot. Yeah. Uh, when I went to see it, they had a Q&A with the director after the film. And one of the questions was, you know, how did you, uh, like, how did you decide this was the next thing you wanted to do? And she said it was because she was looking for stock footage of volcanic eruptions and was <laughs> digging oh, through kidding. the archives and was like, wow. oh, all of this is from the same people. What? Huh. <laughs> and so that question led her to the exploration. So, I mean, what the only, what I would say in maybe in in way of supplementing what Abby said about this film is that so much of it felt like I was watching a sci-fi film on another planet. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. so many of the images were so alien. 
And I was shocked to learn that before the crafts, we still basically knew functionally nothing about how volcanoes worked or what they even were. Like they were still a practically a, a, a cosmic mystery right here on Earth, you know? And and then but then I think when you start seeing the footage that they're able to capture, you're like, well, yeah, I get it. You know, this is this is so alien and so dangerous, obviously. And and so what it engendered in me, and one of the reasons I wanted to see it on a big screen was this profound sense of awe. You know, yeah. it's a sense of play that I think emerges when I when I think about any of the stuff that exists in our world that didn't have to be here, you know that are things that we get to experience as creatures who live on this planet in a way of communing with God that, that I think is very spiritual. And yet also to Abby's point, I mean, these people died doing this stuff, right? So it's not it's not safe always to experience these things. It, it So it, it, it took me to a really complex theological place as I was just enjoying the un, like literally unbelievable the only reason I believed it is because it's a documentary, but like I would have thought it was CGI if it was in any other movie, you know, the the footage of of stuff that is happening on our planet, you know, that it just seems so completely alien and other. I, I found it really beautiful. And watching it again last night, I think for the second time, I watched it for the first time at the True False Festival and hadn't seen it again since, but just remembered how much I'd loved it. Just the fact that this is about two people who both loved this one thing intensely that they wanted to understand more and to get closer to it all the time and to try and recognize its beauty and mystery and also the fear that it instills really resonated with me <laughs> as a person mm -hmm. who likes to review films from a Christian perspective and whose faith is a big part of their life. Like, there's a lot of crossover, I think, of of feeling drawn toward better understanding God or better understanding an art form through um, a lens of something that means a lot to you and having both a sense of awe and also a sense of trepidation about the the the, the fear and and joy and ups and downs that come along with that. I, I, I think that's a really powerful element of the film too. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's the hope when we're engaging with a lot of stuff that we talk about here in this show. Absolutely. Uh, Jer, I like that you brought in the fact that there is a sense of play because that struck me right away. You know, there's some really crunchy guitar, striking guitar chords that the movie opens with. You're like, wait, is this a nature documentary? What's going on here? <laughs> I think you'd also, I could also ascribe a sense of play to the narration from filmmaker Miranda July, which is very dry, a little droll, um, but fits also the playfulness. And then at the same time, you know, the heart of the movie is what we've already talked about. The, another phrase you used, JR, cosmic mystery. While watching this for me, Job 38 came to mind. And especially in the way that the crafts, they document and are in awe of these geological forces that are eons in the making, you know? So that gave me this Job 38 vibe where God answers Job's complaints with this massive monologue that includes this challenge. Where were you when I laid the earth's mm -hmm. foundation? And I think fire of love, at least for me, very much put me in my cosmic place in that way, but also because it does focus on the humanity of the crafts and their relationship. This brings us back to the love angle. It's also a very personal story, um, which of course Job was a personal story too. So, so I saw a lot of parallels there with fire of love. There's a song by a band called Me Without You 
uh, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with them, but uh, it's called King, The King Beetle on the Coconut Estate. And it's a narrative story in the song about these beetles on this coconut plantation where every night the dead leaves are gathered and burned. And the beetles, of course, don't understand this process. All they know is every night this great light appears and they want to know what it is. But every time any of the, you know, the professor beetle can't study it well enough to explain it. And the, the soldier beetle, can't, despite all of his power, can't get close enough without being burned. And it's it's about this like inability to ascertain what this divine light is. And towards the end of the song, there's this plea where it moves out of story into more of an engagement with the listener where he says, why not be utterly consumed in the fire? And why not be utterly mm. changed into fire? Talking about God as this, you know, cosmic mystery at the heart of creation. And I I, I kept like humming that as I was leaving the theater because of what you said, Abby, <laughs> right? Like they have this, they have this deep love and this deep passion that has not only drawn them towards this this cosmic mystery, but also towards one another, right? And mm-hmm. and bound you like you get the sense that their love for one another is inseparable from their love for volcanoes. And to even try to tease those out is a little silly. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly never tried to do such a thing. And I just I thought about what it means to love something so much that you are happy to be consumed by it, mm-hmm. you know, and how that is a in terms of spiritual formation, that's the goal, right? Is to love God so much that we are transformed in the image of Christ. I don't know. I was, I, again, I just was really moved by it. Yeah. And also the the idea that you can't do that fully without the help of other people. I think there's a, there's a bit of narration mm. in the film where uh, Miranda July says, apart, like by themselves, they could only dream of volcanoes. Together, they can reach them. And I feel like that is also true of like of, of the body of Christ, right? Like we can only have select parts of of the experience of the the uh, spiritual growth that we want to have and by being in communion with other people we can better understand the world and we can better understand the the love of of God and our relationship with God so that's fire of love which actually it is national geographic produced but it's available because of you know that's part of the the Disney conglomerate now so you can watch it on Disney plus if listeners have not seen it it's not the big screen but still, it looks incredible. So catch up with it <laughs> there. We're going to move to our next pick with an email that we got from listener Carl Udy. Again, you can always email us with comments or questions at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. Carl highlighted everything everywhere all at once and wrote this. Perhaps one of the most fun and creative renderings of a multiverse in recent memory, but perhaps more importantly, it reminds us of the need to redeem the narrative we are in by loving those around us, instead of living in bitter regret for the narratives we wished we were in. So, JR, this was your choice for one of the best movies of the year. Does Carl's comment resonate with you? Absolutely. And by the way, hi, Carl. Good. Uh, he's a buddy that I met through the podcast, actually. So awesome. Hi. Nice. Hi, Carl. Great. Great to hear from you. <laughs> always. He always has such terrific insights. So I love it. This movie had so much buzz. It was one of the movies that I didn't want to even watch a trailer for. So every time the trailer came on, I just, you know, did that in the theater. And as soon as it was, uh, as it was over, you know, I turned to my wife and I was like, if that if that's not the best movie that I see this year, then what a year for movies, because it is going to be like mm. nigh impossible to top that. <laughs> and I mean, every what what can we possibly say that hasn't been said about this movie yet from the incredible performances to the amazing way the script holds together, despite being completely bonkers, everything about it. You know, I think 
thematically the idea that nothing matters so we can do whatever we want actually counterintuitively maybe I think has some rich theological fodder for us. And I just genuinely enjoyed, I think also, you know, the idea of the multiverse is something that's becoming more and more accepted within scientific circles, like in with quantum mechanics and all of that. And so I just enjoyed the opportunity to do a little theological dancing with the idea of the multiverse. Cause I, <laughs> uh-huh. I think, I think sooner rather than later, we're going to have to go there anyway, you know, and we're going to have to ask like what that looks like. And I thought everything everywhere all at once provided us with a great opportunity to, as Carl said, like redeem the life we have, not, not waste time grieving the life we want to have. Yeah, I think that's well said. And you've got my mind spinning more scientifically than it was during <laughs> the movie. But I think you're right. This is this is maybe a tiptoe away in to think about what matters if that does become a reality. You know, how how does it shift our understanding of things, including our understanding of God and our own existence? How does it not shift it? What stays the same? What's elemental, even with that reality? You know, when when Evelyn, the main character played by Michelle Yeoh, is thrust into this multiverse, what changes for her and what's what remains fundamental? I mean, those are the crucial questions that I think the movie does explore. No matter what, I still want to be here with you. I will always, always want to be here with you. What did you make of this one, Abby? Yeah, Jr. You're, when you when you said that uh, the the concept that nothing matters has some kind of deep theological connections, I'll I'll uh, quote my mom again in discussing discussing the film after she watched it. She brought up Julian of Norwich and the the quote "All shall be well and all manner of things shall be well." And I think that's that's kind of the direction that the film's idea uh, the the switch from the nihilism of nothing matters to the nothing matters that we get at the end from Michelle Yeoh is is very much that. That all of the all of the stresses, all of the things that surround her her reality don't matter as much as the thing that's in front of her right now, the relationships that actually make up her 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 life, her relationship to her daughter, her relationship with her father and her husband. And I think that's that's kind of where it ends up coming to. And that's I think that's a really beautiful transition. It's the same, you know, the same language, but with a radically different meaning behind it. And I really like that. Another thing that came up for me when uh, when I was writing about the film for Sojourners is a quote from Joan Chittister and uh, her book, Wisdom Distilled from the Daily. And she said, the spiritual life, in other words, is not achieved by denying one part of life for the sake of another. The spiritual life is achieved only by listening to all of life and learning to respond to each of its dimensions wholly and with integrity. Which I feel like has has like big multiverse implications, right? Like looking at all of these different elements and considering like what is what is ancillary, what is specific to those experiences, what is elemental, what is universal between all of these experiences that really help me to kind of stay anchored and figure out what is true about myself and in my own identity. Which in turn, I think helps you kind of understand how to, I guess, in kind of therapist terms, bloom where you're planted <laughs> to kind of understand what's really true about your life and to appreciate it for what it is and not to reject what you have for what you wish you had, which is a, a huge element of the movie. But also just on an aesthetic level, I really appreciate the the kind of childlike sense of creativity that everything everywhere all at once has mixed with all of this really profound emotional maturity <laughs> and, uh, you know, theological and philosophical depth that we're discussing it with. 
but essentially it's just in terms of attitude, a lot of the stuff that the Daniels make, which is a, an attitude that I really appreciate, is just like a couple of like third or fourth grade boys who just had an idea and thought, wouldn't it be fun if we did this? And then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Um, and like, and then maybe there's dinosaurs. I don't know. Sounds cool. <laughs> so it's like this really beautiful balance of, you know, really deeply thought and felt emotion and consideration for the truth of our lives and what we want it to be and what it actually is and how to kind of balance between those two things. And just like insane gonzo creativity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah. Like what if dinosaurs, why not? Why not a bagel with literally everything on it? That sounds like fun. What can we make that look like? I think that's, that's, I would love to see more movies address really big and interesting ideas with that amount of creativity. I would I would love to see more of that. In terms of the filmmaking, that goes back to what we were talking about with Fire of Love, the playfulness, mm-hmm. right? This film is wrestling with these deeply existential, very distressing ideas, but with such a light creativity and playfulness that uh, it doesn't feel overwhelming in that way, even though there's a lot coming at you. The, the Daniels, the... The name the directors go by, Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Um, incredible, incredible work here bringing this all together in a massive, quite crazy movie. Uh, it was my number three of the year. I loved it almost as much as you guys did. And also, this is one that was very hearteningly a huge hit with audiences, yeah. despite it being unlike anything else we've probably ever seen and very ambitious. So if there are other listeners who've seen this, maybe the the most well-seen of the movies we're going to be talking about, and they want to dig more deeply into some of these theological ideas, Zachary Lee also wrote about it for Think Christian. So that post is at thinkchristian.net. And I'll bring us full circle here by just uh, reading a little bit from Zachary's post because it touches on the same thing Carol did in his email. This is Zachary. The movie also suggests that the best life isn't necessarily the version in which we have it all, but the one where we live is those who have been loved despite our difficulties and mistakes. What better life is there to live than one marked by the kind of love Jesus showed to us? One that pursues us, even if it doesn't make sense, one that chases us fiercely, and one that doesn't see us for the worst things we've done. A love that jumps universes. So that's everything, everywhere, all at once. Absolutely one of the best of 2022. All right, time for my pick, the title I wanted to bring to our discussion. It was my number eight film of the year, the delightful but also very dark stop-motion work, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Del Toro, of course, the mastermind behind films such as The Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth and many others. Now, I've had my say about this movie. I actually did some writing for TC, rare these days, but I I got on the keyboard and actually wrote something, a deep dive post for the website. I compared Del Toro's version to Disney's live action remake, which also came out in 2022, and then compared both of those to Disney's 1940 original. Basically just went looking for signs of grace in what I consider to otherwise be a fairly works-based fairy tale. So we'll link to that. I'm not going to belabor my point here because I'd rather hear from you two. I want to know what you thought of this film. And I especially want to know this thing was loaded with religious imagery and references and ideas, though I don't think you could describe it as distinctly Christian, really. But that was just my impression. What do you, what do you guys, what did you guys make of it? Let's let's start with you, Abby. Uh, first of all, I, I want to note that I've never seen a uh, an image of the blue fairy that crossed paths with the biblically accurate angel meme, but we did get it. I thought yeah, that was cool. No kidding. <laughs> 
I think there's there's a lot going on in this movie. I was primarily moved by its its the way that it addresses grief and the way that it kind of encourages us to have the the relationship that it encourages us to have with people who have passed on. And especially the end of the film, which is just about as bittersweet as it gets. It really, it kind of breaks your heart and puts it all back together in that, like, there are people we love and then they die and that's it. <laughs> and in terms of our earthly knowledge of those people, that is, I mean, that's true. Our, our faith tells us that we will see them again. But in terms of what we have to live with in the time being, it's we have to live with our memories of those people and we have to appreciate them for what they've been and to kind of appreciate our own lives for the um, the finitude that we have and to live that with as much playfulness and joy and courage, basically, as we as we possibly can, which I feel like is another kind of sub-theme of that movie. I think there's a lot of, in terms of the religious imagery, I think there's a lot of critique of the institution of religion and the way that that sometimes crosses over with portrayals of nationalism. Um, I think the fascist Italy in this film, much like the fascism of the Spanish Civil War in del Toro's earlier films, is not... It's not a coincidence. <laughs> I think it's meant to speak to the world that we live in now. And I I certainly empathize with uh, with Del Toro's feelings about that. I've heard them. I've heard similar ideas voiced by other people in my life, which is not to say that I fully agree with them, but I absolutely get where they're coming from. Yeah, you can trace a lot of threads from this one to other works by Del Toro. And I think that concern for fascism is absolutely one. It's also, it struck me, and maybe this is one thing you liked about it, JR, as very much a horror take on Pinocchio. I mean, the 1940 Listen. film is dark too, right? That's that's not an easy one. But here we really get, especially that sequence of Geppetto carving Pinocchio in a drunken, grief-stricken, to your point, Abby, rage. That's a terrifying sequence. Was the horror one of the things you liked about this one, Jer? It was, but I was surprised. And uh, I was actually going to invite some of the kids that live in my household to watch it with me. <laughs> and very quickly into the movie, I was like, ooh, glad I didn't. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I honestly, I just watched it for the first time yesterday. I kept putting it off because I was like, I don't know. I know the story of Pinocchio. Like what? Hmm. How interesting can it possibly be? You know, and I was I was pleasantly surprised. It was whimsical. It was funny. It was very dark, you know, in a way that I think me Mexican filmmakers tend to be able to pull off a lot better than than U.S. filmmakers. I think we have we have too much of that, like always look on the sunny side of life mentality where if we can we can do dark or we can do whimsical, but it's hard for us. You know, Tim Burton's maybe the only one that really does a good job of fusing those things. And I think Del Toro, I mean, in a lot of his movies has done that really well. Like put like, you know, you, you pans labyrinth, right? You, which you already alluded to Abby, like you stick a, you stick a child who's full of wonder and excitement in the middle of very dark circumstance. And you just let those two things happen, you know? So this one, I don't know. Like I, I looked at, I mean, it's, it's hard when you have a character that, sacrifices themselves for the good of everyone else and then is rewarded for that to not see the G the Jesus allegory there. But yeah, with Geppetto working on the big crucifix in the church, Abby, to your point, the the biblically accurate angel being the fairy, both the, the I guess the we're supposed to understand the angel of life and the angel of death or whatever, the, the, the two twin sisters talking about how everything has consequences and there's no, you know, there's no, nothing, nothing can happen without some other kind of rule 
But then the one exception you really have to that is uh, Sebastian J. Cricket's wish, <laughs> where uh, not only is he allowed to bring Pinocchio back, but actually when he's trying to argue that he should get his wish, he even like he even confesses, well, I guess I didn't actually do a very good job, but please still do, you know, please still give me the wish so I can yeah. bring it back. Right? I did see a lot of grace in that space right there where it was almost like the again whatever we're calling her the angel of life or the blue fairy or whatever like she was almost like yeah i'm gonna bring him back just like go ahead and make the wish man (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't depend on what you do it doesn't and there and 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 you even i don't know i maybe i'm reading into the movie what i wanted but i felt that right like she doesn't even ask him for an accounting she doesn't mm. bring out a spreadsheet or anything. I mean, she's all I, you almost got the sense that she's like hiding a smile as he is, you know, well, come on. I did. I did it. Well, I kind of did it. OK, maybe I didn't even do a very good job. You know, like he like backtracks so fast and then she immediately still comes back with. Yeah, like here he comes, you know, and I love that he wasn't uh, a flesh and blood boy at the end. A real boy didn't depend on, you know, the 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 human body. Right. It was more about what it means to be human is to be in a relationship, to be loving, to be willing to lay down your life for your friend, you know? Yeah. And then the declaration at that point from Geppetto about, you know, love, I love you just the way you Mm -hmm. are is, you know, such a crusher. And also, you know, part of the tension of this movie that I think is pulled between what we can do, what we're responsible for and what is a gift. I don't know if the movie ever kind of rationalizes that, but I certainly had fun poking around and exploring where it explored these ideas and where it even contradicted itself at times. Pinocchio, my child, I was trying to make you someone you were not. So don't be Carlo or anyone else. Be exactly who you are. I, I love you exactly as you are. <laughs> and yeah, you know, there's something I'd like to rewatch it. And I'm probably going to because I didn't watch it with my wife and she wants to see it. So rewatch it again. But something about how adding in that layer of the fascist government. So then you have all of these different people that want to be in charge of Pinocchio, right? To, who want to put their strings on him to really lean into the metaphor. Right. Not not just the circus performer, not just Geppetto, but now even like the fascist, the fascist government, the government that wants to control and, you know, puppeteer the whole country. So, yeah, I don't know. There's something there. Uh, I, you know, listeners, please feel free to add me if you'd like to enlighten me, because I'm I'm still <laughs> thinking about it. And I would I would love to hear what what folks think about that. But and we barely touched on the artistry and imagery, you know, with oh the, my the stop motion oh, yeah. creativity, right? Did you did you have a favorite like image or moment or detail with that, Abby, that oh, comes to mind? I I think the the scenes that I liked the most were the ones that related to the the underworld where Pinocchio goes, the the few times that he does that he dies and comes back. Particularly after yeah. I think there's like the scene where he uh, stands up to Mussolini and then like dies immediately and just pops out of the casket and goes, I died. And it's like, it's, it's, it's uh-huh. a great little <laughs> kind of whip turn that is just like, it's, it's really emblematic of this movie's sense of dark humor and like the, 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 the weird skeletal rabbits I thought were a great touch. 
I want to watch this again to make sure that I have this right, but I'm pretty sure that the first time he goes through, there are these two big wooden doors. I'm fairly certain that's a stylized Jack and Sally on either side of that door. Yeah. Oh, wow. So there's like... From Nightmare yeah, Before so Christmas. Yeah, so there's like little subtle could references be. and stuff throughout that I think are really cool. Like a little, yeah, tip of the hat. And also the uh, the the moment when Pinocchio first comes to life, which is I think a good kind of horror moment where it's he's, he's trying to do his best. He's really enthusiastic, but it really, I think, uh, portrays well, which is, you know, it's a big deal for puppetry because, you know, you only have so many expressions. It's kind of hard to to really get that emotion on screen. With, uh, with stop motion sometimes. But Geppetto is, I think, genuinely horrified at this thing that he's created. And you can kind of get a really <laughs> strong sense of the way that he feels, which is, I think, a testament to the craft there. And the way the way Pinocchio moves there, mm-hmm. like he doesn't understand his yeah. body yet. He doesn't understand his yeah. knees yet. So he's he's very floppy and it gives him almost this like spider-like yes. appearance. Definitely. Um, and then, yeah, little monster. Yeah, and then like suddenly sets himself on fire, which is just like, I. this is chaos. This is chaos walking. <laughs> yes. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you both. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you joining me. And real quickly, how about we do this before we sign off? I'd love to get one non-movie recommendation you can make from last year. So a favorite album maybe, or a favorite TV series from 2022 that listeners should check out if they haven't done so. Uh, Abby, what, let's let's stick with you. Do you have one that comes sure. to mind? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll put in a quick plug for uh, the Netflix series 1899, which rules and unfortunately did not get renewed. So uh, prepare yourselves for yeah. some heartbreak there, but it's really good. Something else that I really appreciated this year, maybe on a slightly deeper, more theological level, and I'm excited, will be coming back in who knows what form, but potentially something really upsetting is uh, Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal, <laughs> mm. which, uh, yeah, I think that's there. There's some really fascinating stuff in that move in that uh, in that show about our desire for control, our desire for forgiveness and our inability to forgive ourselves for the things that we've done. Um, and it really seems like the stuff that's set up in that first season is going to go to some potentially very interesting and uh, emotionally wrenching places in in following installments. I can't wait to see what happens next. That's probably one of those series that I read the most about and listened to a lot of conversations about on podcasts, yet didn't get around to watching. I just, I didn't know when I was going to have the fortitude to peel back all of those oh, metal sure. layers yeah, that it seems <laughs> to be working with. So maybe, maybe I'll have uh, to catch up with that before the next season. I watched the first episode with my wife, Amanda, and she folded in half. She cringed so hard through the whole episode. She was that just like, too. she was like, I can't do anymore. It's too awkward for me. And I was like, I was like, I'm mainlining this baby. Yeah. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes in so many, like it, the, the direction that is set up by like the first couple of episodes, just, it takes a hard turn and does not come back in, yeah, mm. in ways that are worth sticking around for. All right. How about you, JR? So, I mean, I, I hesitate to do this, but I loved I love the new Quantum Leap. I love it with the passion of someone who loved the original series. I can't yes, tell if do. it's good or not, <laughs> right? I just love it. So, um, yeah, someone who doesn't have the same emotional attachment to the material that I do, watch it and tell me if it's good. Um, I don't care if it's not. I love it and it's it's around. But I'm I'm again I'm I'm very late to this party. But did you all know that Brandy Carlisle is awesome? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she yeah, has everyone. been mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's been um, mentioned on our best music of the year. Um, the list we have of all suggestions we've gotten. She shows up there. 
Well, count me in. Her new album, In These Silent Days, I caught her on Saturday Night Live when Steve Martin and Martin Short hosted, and her two performances there absolutely blew me away. And again, she's one of those people, like, I know she's good. I know everyone I know that knows her likes her, so why have I not ever given her a serious listen? I don't know. But I just really like her new album a lot. I cannot quit playing it. It's deeply, deeply spiritual. It's got some incredible, very authentically Christian themes in it in the way that I think a lot of good American folk music does. Um, but I just, yeah, I think it's an incredible, an incredible album. So it's it's what I, one of the things I've been enjoying the most towards the end of last year and into this new year. Nice. All right. Some good bonus suggestions there. Thank you both for those. As we say goodbye, what's the best place for listeners to follow you each this year? Where can you be found, JR? Well, you can always find me at TC. Um, I'm, I'm there writing something. But I'm at JR Foresteros. I'm still on Twitter. I'll go down with the ship, I suppose. And, you know, Facebook.com slash JR Foresteros. Those are the probably the two best places to find me. How about you, Abby? Uh, yeah, like JR, I'm still on Twitter. I'm at Abby Olchesi, A-B-B-Y-O-L-C-E-S-E. I always have to spell it because it's never, you know... It, it's it's never intuitive. Yeah, it, it does. And I also recently started a Substack where I am kind of detailing the uh, the process of writing my book uh, month by month. And yeah. yeah, and that is no more popcorn is the name of that Substack. It's free, so you can just sign up, and I send out monthly updates. Love it. Well, thanks again. Good to talk to you guys. Uh, I look forward to doing a lot more of it with both of you this year. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. A bit of Mitski's cover of Glide there, going back to After Yang, Jonathan Kane's pick at the top of the show. That song plays a crucial recurring role in one of the best films of 2022. Thank you to all the listeners who took time to share their favorite movies from last year with us. A few more here before we sign off. Roger Green emailed at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net to share what he appreciated about Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the way it portrayed, quote, dealing with loss, with the community helping each other overcome. More Wakanda Forever love came from Bitia Buenrostro, who most appreciated the underwater kingdom of Talocan. Bitia wrote, The inclusion of Mesoamerican culture and brown Mexican actors in Wakanda Forever left a deep impact in my heart and soul. Having grown up in Mexico, where the media generally favors European-looking talent and underrepresents indigenous Mexicans, Seeing Tena Huerta and Mabel Cadena on screen was powerful. Hearing the name of Kukulkan, a Mayan deity being spoken, seeing Mayan hieroglyphs, learning that the production team worked with Mexican musicians and academic scholars to ensure the cultural accuracy of Mesoamerican culture landed on me as a message of care and respect. Those beautiful brown faces on screen have opened doors for those to come and hopefully open the minds of many others. Thank you for that, Bitia. One last email to share. This one comes from Aaron Potter about the Nordic saga, The Northman. This was a dark and strange movie, but one I really enjoyed. It is certainly not for everyone and requires maturity and discernment to view. But despite that, I also found it very spiritually resonant. 
The TC post about it spoke eloquently about the blood and body-centric nature of this film and linked it to the idea of incarnation, which I found fascinating. But what struck me is at the same time how spiritually focused it was. For the characters in this story, the spiritual world is extremely close and alive in a way that it just isn't for most of us in a modern Western context. Prophecies and visions abound, as do strange but sincere religious rituals, and even the dead are not as dead as we generally expect them to be. To be sure, this is a deeply pagan spiritual world that is grim and dark as can be, and a far cry from the loving holiness and beauty of Christianity. But as is often said of good supernatural horror films, there is something powerful about how seriously they take the non-material world in this movie. Aaron was also kind enough to add, thanks for all that you do at Think Christian. My wife and I deeply appreciate your thoughtful cultural criticism from a discerning, deeply Christian perspective. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you very much to all the listeners as well and the members of the podcast team. Last year was deeply rewarding for me, and I sent the team an email just saying how every episode I come away learning something, feeling spiritually enriched by something that one of them says. So I can't wait to experience more of that in 2023. The Think Christian Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basslin. I'm Josh Larson. Thanks so much for listening. It's regular programming up ahead as we dive officially into 2023. So look for that in a couple of weeks when we'll continue to connect our pop culture fandom with our faith.